This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. It is time to talk some bylaw. And the biggest bylaw that we have encountered in a little while in the city of London has to do with masks. And we mentioned off the top, there were a lot of whereases in the bylaw. And we know that whereases sometimes get us lost. So we now get to welcome the Chief Bylaw Enforcement Officer in the City of London, Oris Katolik, to London Live. Oris, thanks so much for being here. Yes, uh, hi Mike, how are you doing? We, uh, we're doing okay. I'm, I'm interested to get your thoughts and then just understand what we need to know about this particular bylaw. When something comes into effect as quickly as this has, how does that impact you and everybody else working on this? Well, I, I can say, Mike, that this, this has been uh, done rather quickly, but we are definitely living in uh, unique times and uh, we put a, a team together and responded back uh, within a week, uh, and we heavily uh, focused on the advice of the chief medical officer, Dr. Mackey, in preparing this bylaw. And you're, you're absolutely correct, Mike, that uh, it's very important to know the whereases because, uh, you know, the just calling it a mask bylaw, you really have to focus on, on the regulations and on the exemptions. So, Last night, uh, City Council did pass this uh, temporary bylaw uh, requiring face coverings in all enclosed publicly accessible spaces in London. So what that means, uh, so the first whereas is like, what does it apply to? So restaurants, uh, cafeteria, retail establishments of all types, shopping malls, um, places of worship, churches, mosques, synagogues. Uh, libraries, art galleries, banquet halls, uh, premises utilized as a open house or presentation center, so open houses on, on weekends and such, common areas of hotels, motels, uh, concert venues, pretty well any place that the public has accessibility to. However, uh, we also had to focus on whereases in terms of exemptions. So those exemptions are focused on persons with underlying medical conditions or disabilities, uh, persons under under the age of 12, uh, persons that are unable to place or remove a uh, face covering with assistance, uh, persons that are have rights under the Ontario Human Rights Code, and uh, a proviso of those exemptions is that the bylaw officers uh, will not require any further proof uh, for those exemptions. So, for example, if somebody has a pre-existing medical condition that they can't wear a mask, such as asthma or other uh, similar uh, medical issue, uh, we will highly respect their medical privacy and will not uh, be questioning uh, on that medical condition. So, in other words, if someone has a condition, they can simply say, if they're not wearing a mask, I have this condition, and that would make them exempt. Is that enough? Uh, that That is enough under this bylaw because we, we want to respect uh, the privacy of, of individuals with, with respect to their uh, pre-existing medical condition. 
Horace Catola joining us, Chief Bylaw Enforcement Officer with the City of London. As far as penalties go, people get concerned when they hear $500 fine. How do you see kind of that side of the enforcement, Orest? So we, we are very much focused on uh, education up front, voluntary compliance, and enforcement uh, only if necessary. So, uh, Mike, starting tomorrow, uh, bylaw officers will be going out uh, into these establishments to talk to the operators, to ad- advise them of the signage that's required uh, in their premise. And we're, we're making it very easy for the operators. They, they can download the sign off the city's website, uh, london.ca slash maskbylaw. There's a lot of uh, FAQs on that site, so the bylaws on the site, all the exemptions. And we will be also speaking with the public and advising them um, of this temporary bylaw. So we are going to be going to small retailers, to the large malls, over in the next while and focusing on education. Uh, we also will be applying to a, a senior regional judge for a fine of $500. That was the direction. And it, it, it'll take uh, some time to get a, a response back, but they are responding rather quickly. And I also wanted to stress that we're not the only municipality in Ontario that has such a bylaw. So we, we have been communicating with other municipalities that have a very similar temporary bylaw because of COVID-19. And uh, I have to say that uh, the vast majority of municipalities are, are focusing on education up front. We really hope that we never have to get into a situation where we have to issue a fine because what we're finding out in the field is that there's very high compliance. Uh, when we got the orders from the province to focus on parks and what was closed in parks from a provincial directive, what retailers were previously closed from a provincial directive. We issued over 1,200 warnings and only 54 charges. So that indicates uh, to us, to city council, there's very high compliance in London, and that's actually shown on a daily basis when uh, Dr. Mackey reports out uh, new cases of COVID-19. That's it. Just one yesterday, two today, but we're not seeing a big surge like we are seeing in some other municipalities. So, Oris, thanks so much for all the information. I know we may have questions going along, but uh, this at least lays it out to all of us. And this is this is not a moneymaker, right? This is not about going out and saying we're going to find ways to find people $500. You've mentioned the word education a whole lot. This is about education. This is about education, and this is about the health of Londoners and Everybody taking care of themselves and helping to take care of others. Horace, thank you so much for this. Please stay safe through all of this. We appreciate the time. Thanks. That's Horace Katolik, Chief Bylaw Enforcement Officer with the City of London. One-stop shopping has become a big part of our lives, and it's something that local retailers battle against. One-stop shopping, what makes it so good? Well, convenience, you know, of... I need tires and margarine. If I can go to a place that sells tires and margarine and it doesn't taste like motor oil flavored margarine, that's that's hard to knock, you know, if you just need those two things. So it is great in one sense 
I'm really encouraging all of us, and we need to try and do this, please support all of our local merchants, especially from what they have been through. But if we could get a study, okay, we could either do 10 interviews about different components of COVID-19 and how Canadians are feeling, or we could do some one-stop shopping on a number of things, like wearing masks, what you would be willing to do. Would you be willing to fly on a plane? Would you, could you with a goat? All kinds of things. If you had the opportunity to get vaccinated, if there was a COVID-19 vaccination available, would you jump out and get it? How concerned are you about a second wave? How many misconceptions are still out there? So right now, we get to do a little one-stop shopping, not for tires and motor oil-flavored margarine. We get to do it for all of those things that I just mentioned. Thanks very much to what has been done at the Carleton University School of Journalism and Communication because they've done a survey and they've talked to roughly 2,000 Canadians and made use of abacus data and they did this earlier this month, and now we get to find out what they have discovered. Dr. Chris Waddell joins us, Professor Emeritus at the School of Journalism and Communication. Dr. Waddell, thanks so much for being here. Thanks very much, Mike. Let's kind of start this one-stop shopping. And first off, thank you for creating this for us, because it allows us to get through a lot of different things. We've been talking about masks, because in southwestern Ontario, we finally have ourselves now a masking bylaw. What did you hear or find out about Canadians and wearing cloth masks? Well, basically, most people agree with the idea of wearing cloth masks. About 75% of them said that uh, that they they would um, would want wear them or uh, when they're out and uh, and don't feel they can maintain a safe distance from a safe physical distance from other people. So there's widespread support. Um, they say about 70% say they wear masks when they're in crowds, when they're in grocery stores, when they're in shopping centers, when they're on public transit. And of course, some public transit systems now have uh, have regulated mask wearing as well. But there's about a quarter who say they don't wear masks in any location. Now they're going to have trouble getting into stores in some communities, I think. So they may have to. But there's uh, there's despite what in, 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 we see a lot of publicity or a lot of noise around people saying I don't like masks and all that sort of thing. It's widely it's widely supported by the population. Okay, so that is the, the latest data in terms of wearing masks. So you say about a quarter of people still eh, not really into it. However, as you point out, if you want to be inside anywhere that's public, you might have to change your tune. Uh, let's yeah. talk about the resumption of pre-pandemic life, because there are a lot of things that people are missing. Every once in a while, you'll see a tweet about, oh, I went to this concert last year on this day, or you'll see a Facebook post based on memories. I was at this event, or I went on this right. trip. And there hasn't been a lot of that going on. No trips, but we have planes flying again. We have groups in some areas that are allowed to be a little bit bigger, although outdoor music festivals are not quite there. Certainly no concerts indoors. But the question becomes, if there was a green light on this and we were able to do it, how comfortable would Canadians feel right now in a pandemic? What did you find there? I think we find a lot of Canadians are not very comfortable at all. And, uh, and we also asked a question, I'll, I'll get back to that in a second, but we also asked a question whether people thought the worst was still to come or they thought the worst was behind us or weren't really sure. And 44% thought the worst was still to come with COVID-19 and only 15% thought the worst was behind us. So we asked about... Um, would you fly on an airplane? Would you attend an outdoor music festival? 
Would you go to a concert indoors? Would you attend to an outdoor sporting event or attend an indoor sporting event? And roughly 40% of, of, the, of the respondents across the country said they would not do any of those things. So there's a significant portion of the population, which is consistent with fears that the worst may not be behind us yet, who are very worried about um, potential exposure and just don't want to do things. So that even if things open up, um, the most likely things people said they would feel comfortable doing would be um, going to a sit-down restaurant if it's if it's um, if the people are properly spaced, shopping in a shopping mall, and staying in a hotel. But that's only approximately twenty-five percent of people who say they'd be comfortable doing those things. So, so there's a lot of worry, there's a lot of concern, and people are are anxious and don't feel that even if the things are going to open up, don't feel they'll be rushing out quickly to take advantage of any of that. We're talking right now about a study that has been done, and this is kind of a follow-up study to one done in May by the Carleton University School of Journalism and Communication that looked at attitudes of roughly 2,000 Canadians. It was conducted by Abacus Data from July 6th to July 10th, and we're lucky to have with us Dr. Chris Waddell, Professor Emeritus at the School of Journalism and Communication. Let's dig into a vaccine and... It's one thing to root, root, root for a vaccine to be available. There are a lot of people doing that. But at the same time, then you have the question, and people are already asking this, if there was a vaccine, if somebody said, hey, tomorrow, guess what? You can go and get this shot. Would everybody flock to go and get that shot? Would they feel comfortable being vaccinated based on something coming together by all accounts, quite quickly in the world of vaccines. What did you find there, Dr. Waddell? Uh, about seven, of ten, 7 out of 10 people, about 70% of people said, yes, they would likely get a COVID-19 vaccine once it's available. Um, it's about 45% said definitely, another 24% said probably. But on the other side, there's about 14% who said they would either not, not likely get it or they definitely would not get it. So there's a small group of, of the public who would be not wanting to get a vaccine, but the great majority of people said they would get the vaccine. Um, interestingly, we also asked, do, did, did people think um, getting the vaccine should be mandatory once the vaccine is available? And about a little more than a third of people thought, yes, it should be mandatory. And another quarter, 25%, um, thought, yes, it probably should be mandatory. But, but again, about 14 or 15% disagreed and thought it should never be, be mandatory. So, the people who were opposed, um, uh, who said they didn't want to get a vaccine, they were concerned about um, the harmful side effects. Uh, some were worried about how extensively a vaccine might be tested before it becomes available for public use, and uh, and others worried about whether it was effective or not. But but that's a again that's about fifteen percent of the of the population. So there's widespread support, of, uh, widespread interest in a vaccine, obviously, and I think most people would uh, would um, would get one. And there's a bit less. Um, interest in forcing people to get it, but there is a fair amount of support for that, too. Dr. Chris Waddell joining us, Professor Emeritus of the School of Journalism and Communication at Carleton University. As we look at some survey results that act as some great one-stop shopping, let's look at one last thing, and that is the misinformation that can exist. You checked in on a belief that young people are less likely to be infected by the coronavirus, which is a proven incorrect belief, but you got to see how widespread that belief still is. Uh, how widespread is it? I'm almost afraid to ask. It's about it's about a third of the people that answered the survey, and that was about 2,000 people. Um, and it's highest in, in, in Quebec, with almost 50% believing that in Quebec. And, and interestingly, um, 
men are a little more likely to believe it uh, than women. But I think it's an important finding in that we're seeing what we're seeing in some parts. Um, I live in Ottawa, and of course, we've had a little bit of a spike in infections in Ottawa. Um, and that spike in infections is among younger people. And and um, we're seeing uh, a move downward where more younger people seem to be being infected. And at the same time, bars and restaurants are opening up. Other things are happening. And people may not understand what the risks might be of infection. And, and it's clear that there's a, there's a fair chunk, the fair chunk that don't. Um, uh, interestingly, in all the survey questions that we asked, people who were older tended to be more cautious in their answers than people who were younger. So everything from wearing masks to should they open the border to should we have a vaccine to, uh, to, to should we have um, apps on our phone to track um, that might allow you to track whether you've had exposure to the, the virus. The older people get, the more um, willing they are to think these are important and things that should be done. Whereas younger people um, are, seem to be less worried. Maybe they some people suggest they may have a feeling of invincibility. And at some points, in the, in, of course, as the virus has developed over the last three or four months, it had initially appeared that young people weren't, as, uh, weren't, as, um, uh, get, weren't getting the, the virus and may not be as likely to get it. But that isn't true anymore. Wow. Well, this is a fantastic survey to bring us up to date on so many different things. Dr. Waddell, thank you so much for explaining the results to us, and please stay safe. And if anyone's interested, at the Carlton School of Journalism and Communication website, you can find about an eight-page long document that got lots of details in it. So, Excellent. Um, I'll tweet that out. Great. Thanks very much. Thanks, Dr. Waddell. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Dr. Chris Waddell, Professor Emeritus at the School of Journalism and Communication at Carleton University. So, you know, it, it is interesting to see how things are moving forward. And some of that acceptance for masking, that has gone up from some of the other surveys that we have seen done. But if we could go back and tweak one thing, one thing, how high up on the list would, hey, young people aren't going to be affected that much from this. How important would it be to go back and change that piece of data? Because if you're a talk radio listener, you're very interested in news. You're up to date on everything. If you're somebody who gets their news from their neighbors, and there's a lot of people like that, do they know? Do they, do they believe? They're probably hearing stuff that is six months old now and thinking, yeah, that's, that's still the way it is. Because that's what their neighbor told them six months ago. If there was one thing we could go back and tweak, I'm thinking that would be. We've all done it. We've all been able to get ourselves wrapped into a nature special. The Canadian beaver, one of the most industrious animals on the planet. Look at how it carries logs so many times its body weight from one place to another, designing dams. We've been caught up in that. You've watched that, haven't you? Well, we could create another one. We could create the Canadian teenager. Sleeps until 10, stays up far too late, never far from a cell phone, and texts at speeds not known previously to man. We could do that. Well... It's been done in, in a much more important way than simply observing the habits on a day-to-day basis of a teenager. Because right now, we're going through a pandemic. And as we said earlier, as you get older, a lot of things become not as big a whoop. You've been through stressful situations. You know how to handle them. 
This is a really stressful situation. There's a lot of unknowns to it. And for young people, they've never been through it. And that may be causing some some real difficulties, things that we kind of need to pay attention to on an everyday basis if you have a teenager anywhere in your life. So, thanks to King's University College, we're able to study this a little bit closer because they have been doing the same thing, examining the habits of about a 1,000 teenagers during the early days of this COVID-19 pandemic. And joining us right now is Dr. Tara Dumas, who is an assistant professor of psychology at Huron University College, and Dr. Wendy Ellis Associate, or Dr. Wendy Ellis, who's an associate professor of psychology at King's University College. Dr. Dumas and Dr. Ellis, thank you so much for taking some time for us. Thanks for having us. We're excited to come on and chat with you today. Well, this is a fantastic thing to look at, and maybe, you know, we'll, we'll deal with it in a, a couple of different ways, because substance abuse and substance use certainly comes up. If you give a teenager a lot of time, they're going to look for things to do, and sometimes it will involve certain substances. We're also going to look at maybe the mental health and social media side of this as well. So, Dr. Ellis, why don't we begin with you and, and the idea of the mental health of young people through this. What did you uncover as you examined about a thousand young people? Yeah, thanks so much for having us. We we were really interested in examining the mental health of youth because this is such a difficult time for them. and Everything has been taken away, especially during April when we collected the data. So we wanted to examine their loneliness and depression and what they were doing day to day. So we found they were really having a hard time, uh, especially with the stress surrounding the, the pandemic itself. Um, they were really worried about how their schooling would be impacted. I don't think they were just happy to be out of school. I think they were quite concerned, and I'm sure they still are. Uh, and we found that those have some, some pretty important implications for uh, depression and, and feeling lonely. So uh, we're quite concerned about how teens are doing. When we talk about the topic of social media, Dr. Ellis, a lot of times you look at social media and you don't know whether to say, okay, it's a positive for the teenagers or it's, it's maybe a negative for for teenagers as far as a tool goes during this pandemic does it fall on either side of that fence or is it something that maybe has a different role i i think that's a tough question it's tough for me as a parent too to know what to do uh, we found that when when teens were connecting to their friends online that it was good it helped their loneliness but at the same time we worry about how supportive those relationships might be. And so we found there was a negative effect on their depression. Um, we also found they were using social media quite a lot. So uh, over 10% were using it up to 10 hours a day. So that's quite concerning. Uh, and it did have some negative implications. So while I think we have to be concerned how they're using social media um, and how they're talking to their friends, and it probably isn't the best thing to be using it uh, 10 hours plus a day. If we look at kind of stress, you asked whether or not teens were very concerned about the pandemic. Dr. Ellis, what did you hear back? Yeah, we heard they were really concerned. Uh, we asked them about if they were concerned about getting the virus, and they were worried about that. They were worried about their friends and family members in particular. Um, 
they I, severely, we also asked them if they were worried about being severely ill, what if they got the virus. Um, they weren't as worried about that, and I think that translates to some of the more um, recent things that are going on. But they were concerned about it. They were concerned about finances, schooling. They were concerned about how it's going to impact their friends and their popularity. So there's a lot of levels um, for teens. You know, there's a lot of things going on in their lives that maybe we forget about, like their reputation that they have to worry about. Absolutely. We are talking right now with Dr. Wendy Ellis, Associate Professor of Psychology at King's University College, and we're going to talk about substance abuse in just a moment with Dr. Tara Dumas, who's an Assistant Professor of Psychology at Huron University College, and we're looking at some study information, some study data that has come back. One other thing, Dr. Ellis, is spending time with parents or with siblings that may have gone up during this pandemic what did teens tell you about that yeah we were really interested in asking that asking how they were spending their time um well it probably did go up i still thought it was pretty low and i think as a parent it's hard to carve out that time when you're working at home um but we found that 60 percent of teens were spending less than one hour a day so most of them were spending less than an hour which is not very much considering uh, you're pretty much locked at home with your with your family. Um, but we found when, when teens were spending that time with their family, it offered some significant protection against loneliness and depression. And um, that was a really, uh, really promising effect that we found. Well, let's move on to substance abuse for just a moment. And Dr. Dumas, you were able to kind of look at at this as the lead on this particular survey. We know the Canadian teens have always really engaged in substance abuse. I don't even know how far back we go, but we won't worry about that Mm -hmm. data. However, substance abuse during the pandemic, what did you find there? Yeah, so I was really interested to look at substance use during the pandemic because adolescents, teenagers drink and, and do drugs in a social context, and they do so for social reasons. So it's really interesting to think about, you know, they're not supposed to be seeing their friends now. What is their substance use going to look like? So we looked at, we asked them about their substance use uh, the three weeks leading to um, the emergency, uh, you know, stay-at-home rule, and then their three weeks afterwards to see if there were any differences. We didn't find that uh, more teens were using so we looked at alcohol binge drinking that's you know when you have way too many drinks and when sitting vaping and and cannabis use and the percentages of teens who were doing those things didn't change but among the teens that already used they were increasing their alcohol use and increasing their cannabis use during the pandemic as compared to before um which and and also the binge drinking and the vaping was going down so that was going down which kind of makes sense, you know, binge drinking, you kind of need a, a certain context, right? Like maybe a party it might be hard to binge drink when you're at home with your parents. But so those were kind of the trends. And then we also looked at context of substance use. Uh, and surprisingly to me, I think we found that about a quarter of teens during those first couple weeks when everyone was really staying home and really staying away from everyone, about a quarter of them were still going out and meeting face-to-face with their friends and, and um, using substances. So that was sort of a, a concerning finding that we had. And we looked also to see, like, what kind of teens were most likely to do that. And uh, Wendy was bringing up, you know, with the, the reputation concerns, um, 
we found that teens who were more concerned about their reputation and felt that maybe they weren't as popular with their friends were the ones that were more likely to go out, you know, in those first couple weeks when everyone was staying home and kind of risking themselves and using substances with their with their friends. Interesting. We're talking about data that has been put together by Dr. Tara Dumas, Assistant Professor of Psychology at Huron University College, and Dr. Wendy Ellis, Associate Professor of Psychology at King's University College, detailing how teens are dealing with this pandemic. And Dr. Dumas, one last thing was social distancing. You asked about social distancing because of those relationships. And Dr. Ellis pointed to that that reputation that still exists in the world of teenagers to some great extent. What did you find about social distancing? So just that, I mean, they they were social distancing, um, except for they were le- the ones that were less likely to do so were the ones, and, and specifically less likely to do so and to use substances, were those teens that felt that COVID was going to affect their reputations with their friends. So I think, you know, as adults, like as you said, we say, uh, you know, we've been there, we've done that. It's probably not so bad with the with the pandemic. We can't go to certain parties or certain social events. We might actually be happy about that as adults. But with teenagers, it's a pretty big deal. So I don't think we can overlook like how important it is. Um, their concerns for their reputation and how like this this whole pandemic will affect their friendships because it clearly is affecting their um, their safety behaviors. And I and I do think that you know if if during those first weeks where everyone was so frightened, if teens, a quarter of them, were still likely to go out and drink and do drugs face-to-face with their friends, I, I really do think that in stage three, those are probably the same people who might be going to the big parties and, you know, again, still putting themselves at risk. Well, this is really comprehensive. Thank you to both of you for all of your work on this. It's fantastic, and thanks for sharing it with us. Thank, Thank you for you having so us. Take care. Be safe. Thank you. You too. Dr. Wendy Ellis from King's University College and Dr. Tara Dumas, who is with Huron University College, on a really comprehensive look at some of the concerns that teens have had. Best thing to do, keep that conversation open. Whether you have a grandson, granddaughter, son, daughter, niece, nephew, you name it, just uh, shoot them a text. They usually get back really fast. Texting faster than anyone ever has in history. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.